Hi, and welcome to Sleep Tight Relax. Hi there, this is Clark, and welcome to this episode of Sleep, Type, Relax, the podcast where we help you prepare to drift calmly off to sleep by listening to the calming sounds of nature, soothing music, and rich sleep stories. Our format is simple. You pick an episode, get comfortable, then I'll lead you through a short relaxation exercise followed by either music, sounds of nature, or a long sleep story. Before we continue with tonight's episode, let's first make sure you have a suitable environment for comfort. When I get ready for sleep, I like to try to ensure that my bedroom is as dark, quiet, and cool as possible. So take a moment to get yourself situated in your bed and lie on your back. Position your pillows or your other little comforts to make sure that everything feels as it should. Now, let's try to take a few deep breaths. And remember, as you breathe, to breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. Breathe in blue skies and breathe out gray skies. Take your time breathing in and out. One fun thing to do when you're taking deep breaths is to have a stuffed toy on your belly when you breathe. When you breathe in, the stuffed toy or animal goes up. Then when you breathe out, the toy animal goes back down. If you're like me, and no longer have stuffed toys in your room, you can try using a pillow. Continue your deep breathing for as long as you feel comfortable 
as we listen to the continuation of the Red-Headed League. I hope you have a deep and restful sleep. Well, Watson, said Holmes, when our visitor had left us, what do you make of it all? I make nothing of it, I answered frankly. It is a most mysterious business. As a rule, said Holmes, the more bizarre a thing is, the less mysterious it proves to be. It is your commonplace, featureless crimes which are really puzzling, just as a commonplace face is the most difficult to identify. But I must be prompt over this matter. What are you going to do then? I asked. To smoke, he answered. It is quite a three-pipe problem, and I beg that you won't speak to me for 50 minutes. He curled himself up in his chair with his thin knees drawn up to his hawk-like nose. And there he sat with his eyes closed and his bird clay pipe thrusting out like the bill of some strange bird. I had come to the conclusion that he had dropped asleep and indeed was nodding myself when he suddenly sprang out of his chair with the gesture of a man who has made up his mind and put his pipe down on the mantelpiece. Let's go have a look. We traveled by the underground as far as Aldersgate and a short walk took us to Saxe-Coburg Square. The scene of the singular story which we had listened to in the morning. It was a pokey, little, shabby, genteel place where four lines of dingy, two-storied brick houses looked out into a small, railed-in enclosure, where a lawn of weedy grass and a few clumps of faded laurel bushes made a hard fight against a smoke-laden and uncongenial atmosphere. Three gilt balls and a brown board with Jabez Wilson in white letters upon a corner house announced the place where our red-headed client carried on his business. Sherlock Holmes stopped in front of it with his head on one side and looked it all over, with his eyes shining brightly between puckered lids. Then he walked slowly up the street and then down again to the corner, still looking keenly at the houses. Finally, he returned to the pawnbrokers and having thumped vigorously upon the pavement with his stick two or three times, he went up to the door and knocked 
it was instantly opened by a bright-looking, clean-shaven young fellow who asked him to step in. Thank you, said Holmes. I only wish to ask you how you would go from here to the Strand. Third right, fourth left, answered the assistant promptly, closing the door. Smart fellow that, observed Holmes as we walked away. He is, in my judgment, the fourth smartest man in London. And for daring, I am not sure that he has not a claim to be third. I have known something of him before. Evidently, said I, Mr. Wilson's assistant counts for a good deal in this mystery of the red-headed league. I am sure that you inquired your way merely in order that you might see him? Not him. What then? The knees of his trousers. And what did you see? What I expected to see. Why did you beat the pavement? My dear doctor, this is a time for observation, not for talk. We are spies in an enemy's country. We know something of Saxe-Coburg Square. Let us now explore the parts which lie behind it. The road in which we found ourselves as we turned round the corner from the retired Saxe-Coburg Square presented as great a contrast to it as the front of a picture does to the back. It was one of the main arteries which convey the traffic of the city to the north and west. The roadway was blocked with the immense stream of commerce flowing in a double tide inward and outward, while the footpaths were black with the hurrying swarm of pedestrians. It was difficult to realize as we looked at the line of fine shops and stately business premises that they backed on the other side upon the faded and stagnant square which we had just left. Let me see, said Holmes, standing at the corner and glancing along the line. I should like just to remember the order of the houses here. It is a hobby of mine to have an exact knowledge of London. There is Mortimer's, the tobacconist's, the little newspaper shop, the Coburg branch of the City and Suburban Bank, the vegetarian restaurant, and McFarland's Carriage Building Depot. That carries us right on to the other block. And now, Doctor, we've done our work, so it's time we had some play. A sandwich and a cup of coffee. My friend was an enthusiastic musician, being himself not only a very capable performer, but a composer of no ordinary merit. All the afternoon, he sat in the stalls, wrapped in the most perfect happiness, gently waving his long, thin fingers in time to the music, 
while his gently smiling face and his languid, dreamy eyes were as unlike those of Holmes, the sleuth hound. Holmes, the relentless, keen-witted, ready-handed criminal agent as it was possible to conceive. In his singular character, the dual nature alternately asserted itself and his extreme exactness and astuteness represented, as I have often thought, the reaction against the poetic and contemplative mood which occasionally predominated in him. The swing of his nature took him from extreme languor to devouring energy. And as I knew well, he was never so truly formidable as when, for days on end, he had been lounging in his armchair amid his improvisations and his black-letter additions. Then it was that the lust of the chase would suddenly come upon him, and that his brilliant reasoning power would rise to the level of intuition. Upon those who were unacquainted with his methods, would look askance on him as a man whose knowledge was not that of other mortals. When I saw him that afternoon so enwrapped in the music at St. James Hall, I felt that an evil time might be coming upon those whom he had set himself to hunt down. You want to go home, no doubt, doctor, he remarked as we emerged. Yes, it would be well. And I have some business to do which will take some hours. This business at Coburg Square is serious. Why serious? A considerable crime is in contemplation. I have every reason to believe that we shall be in time to stop it. But today being Saturday rather complicates matters. I shall want your help tonight. At what time? Ten will be early enough. I shall be at Baker Street at ten. Very well. And I say, doctor, there may be some danger. So kindly put your army revolver in your pocket. He waved his hand, turned on his heel, and disappeared in an instant among the crowd. I trust that I am not more dense than my neighbors, but I was always oppressed with a sense of my own stupidity in my dealings with Sherlock Holmes. Here, I had heard what he had heard. I had seen what he had seen. And yet from his words, it was evident that he saw clearly not only what had happened, but what was about to happen. While to me, the whole business was still confused and grotesque. As I drove home to my house in Kensington, I thought over it all. From the extraordinary story of the red-headed copier of the encyclopedia, down to the visit to Saxe-Coburg Square, and the ominous words with which he had parted from me. What was this nocturnal expedition, and why should I go armed? Where were we going, and what were we to do? 
I had the hint from Holmes that this smooth-faced pawnbroker's assistant was a formidable man, a man who might play a deep game. I tried to puzzle it out, but gave up in despair and set the matter aside until night should bring an explanation. It was a quarter past nine when I started from home and made my way across the park and so through Oxford Street to Baker Street. Two hansoms were standing at the door, and as I entered the passage, I heard the sound of voices from above. On entering his room, I found Holmes in animated conversation with two men, one of whom I recognized as Peter Jones, the official police agent, while the other was a long, thin, sad-faced man with a very shiny hat and oppressively respectable frock coat. Ha! Our party is complete, said Holmes, buttoning up his pea jacket and taking his heavy hunting crop from the rack. Watson, I think you know Mr. Jones of Scotland Yard? Let me introduce you to Mr. Merriweather, who is to be our companion in tonight's adventure. We're hunting in couples again, doctor, you see, said Jones in his consequential way. Our friend here is a wonderful man for starting a chase. All he wants is an old dog to help him to do the running down. I hope a wild goose may not prove to be the end of our chase, observed Mr. Merriweather gloomily. You may place considerable confidence in Mr. Holmes, sir, said the police agent loftily. He has his own little methods, which are, if he won't mind my saying so, just a little too theatrical and fantastic. But he has the makings of a detective in him. It is not too much to say that once or twice as in that business of the Sholto murder and the Agra treasure, he has been more nearly correct than the official force. Oh, if you say so, Mr. Jones, it is all right, said the stranger. Still, I confess that I miss my rubber. It is the first Saturday night for seven and twenty years that I have not had my rubber. I think you will find, said Sherlock Holmes, that you will play for a higher stake tonight than you have ever done yet, and that the play will be more exciting. For you, Mr. Merriweather, the stake will be some 30,000 pounds, and for you, Jones, it will be the man upon whom you wish to lay your hands. John Clay, the murderer, thief, Smasher and Forger. He's a young man, Mr. Wearyweather, but he is at the head of his profession, and I would rather have my bracelets on him than on any criminal in London. He's a remarkable man, John Clay. His grandfather was a royal duke, and he himself has been to Eton and Oxford. His brain is as cunning as his fingers, and though we meet signs of him at every turn, 
we never know where to find the man himself. He'll crack a crib in Scotland one week and be raising money to build an orphanage in Cornwall the next. I've been on his track for years and have never set eyes on him yet. I hope that I may have the pleasure of introducing you tonight. I've had one or two little turns also with Mr. John Clay, and I agree with you that he is at the head of his profession. It is past 10, however, and quite time that we started. If you two will take the first hansom, Watson and I will follow in the second. Sherlock Holmes was not very communicative during the long drive and lay back in the cab hubbing the tombs which he had heard in the afternoon. We rattled through an endless labyrinth of gas-lit streets until we emerged into Farringdon Street. We are close there now, my friend remarked. This fellow Merriweather is a bank director and personally interested in the matter. I thought it as well to have Jones with us also. He is not a bad fellow, though an absolute imbecile in his profession. He has one positive virtue. He is as brave as a bulldog and as tenacious as a lobster if he gets his claws upon anyone. Here we are, and they are waiting for us. We had reached the same crowded through fare in which we had found ourselves in the morning. Our cabs were dismissed, and following the guidance of Mr. Merriweather, we passed down a narrow passage and through a side door which he opened for us. Within there was a small corridor which ended in a very massive iron gate. This also was opened and led down a flight of winding stone steps which terminated at another formidable gate. Mr. Merriweather stopped to light a lantern and then conducted us down a dark, earth-smelling passage. And so, after opening a third door into a huge vault or cellar, which was piled all around with crates and massive boxes. You are not very vulnerable from above, Holmes remarked as he held up the lantern and gazed about him. Nor from below, said Mr. Merriweather, striking his stick upon the flags which lined the floor. Why, dear me, it sounds quite hollow, he remarked, looking up in surprise. I must really ask you to be a little more quiet, said Holmes severely. You have already risked the whole success of our expedition. Might I beg that you would have the goodness to sit down upon one of those boxes and not to interfere? The solemn Mr. Merriweather perched himself upon a crate and with a very injured expression upon his face, Holmes fell upon his knees upon the floor and with the lantern and a magnifying glass began to examine the cracks between the stones. A few seconds sufficed to satisfy him, for he sprang to his feet again 
and put his glass in his pocket. We have at least an hour before us, he remarked, for they can hardly take any steps until the good pawnbroker is safely in bed. Then they will not lose a minute, for the sooner they do their work, the longer time they will have for their escape. We are at present, doctor, as you no doubt have divined, in the cellar of the city branch of one of the principal London banks. Mr. Merriweather is the chairman of directors, and he will explain to you that there are reasons why the more daring criminals of London should take a considerable interest in this cellar at present. It is our French gold, whispered the director. We have had several warnings that an attempt might be made upon it. Your French gold? Yes, we had occasion some months ago to strengthen our resources and borrowed for that purpose 30,000 Napoleons from the Bank of France. It has become known that we have never had occasion to unpack the money and that it is still lying in our cellar. The crate upon which I sit contains 2,000 Napoleons packed between layers of lead foil. Our reserve of bullion is much larger at present than is usually kept in a single branch office, and the directors have had misgivings upon the subject. Which were very well justified, observed Holmes. And now it is time that we arranged our little plans. I expect that within an hour matters will come to a head. In the meantime, Mr. Merriweather, we must put the screen over that dark lantern. And sit in the dark? I am afraid so. I see that the enemy's preparations have gone so far that we cannot risk the presence of a light. And, first of all, we must choose our positions. These are daring men, and though we shall take them at a disadvantage, they may do us some harm unless we are careful. I shall stand behind this crate, and you can conceal yourself behind those. Then, when I flash a light upon them, close in swiftly. If they fire Watson, have no compunction about shooting them down. I placed my revolver upon the top of the wooden case behind which I crouched. Holmes shot the slide across the front of his lantern and left us in pitch darkness. Such an absolute darkness as I have never before experienced. The smell of hot metal remained to assure us that the light was still there, ready to flash out at a moment's notice. To me, with my nerves worked up to a pitch of expectancy, there was something depressing and subduing in the sudden gloom and in the cold, dank air of the vault. They have but one retreat, whispered Holmes. That is back through the house into Saxe-Coburg Square. I hope that you have done what I asked you, Jones. 
I have an inspector and two officers waiting at the front door. Then we have stopped all the holes, and now we must be silent and wait. What a time it seemed. From comparing notes afterwards, it was but an hour and a quarter. Yet it appeared to me that the night must have almost gone, and the dawn would be breaking above us. My limbs were weary and stiff, for I feared to change my position, yet my nerves were working up to the highest pitch of tension. And my hearing was so acute that I could not only hear the gentle breathing of my companions, but I could distinguish the deeper, heavier in-breath of the bulky Jones from the thin, sighing note of the bank director. From my position, I could look over the case in the direction of the floor. Suddenly, my eyes caught a glint of the light. At first, it was but a lurid spark upon the stone pavement. Then it lengthened out until it became a yellow line. And then, without any warning or sound, a gash seemed to open and a hand appeared. A white, almost womanly hand, which felt about in the center of the little area of light. For a minute or more, the hand, with its writhing fingers, protruded out of the floor. Then it was withdrawn as suddenly as it had appeared, and all was dark again, save the single lurid spark which marked a chink between the stones. Its disappearing, however, was momentary. With a rending, tearing sound, one of the broad white stones turned over upon its side and left a square, gaping hole through which streamed the light of a lantern. Over the edge there peeped a clean-cut boyish face, which looked keenly about it, and then, with a hand on either side of the aperture, drew itself shoulder-high and waist-high until one knee rested upon the edge. In another instant, he stood at the side of the hole, and was hauling after him a companion, lethe and small like himself, with a pale face and a shock of very red hair. It's all clear, he whispered. Have you the chisel and the bags? Great Scott, jump, Archie, jump, and I'll swing for it. Sherlock Holmes had sprung out and seized the intruder by the collar. The other dived down the hole, and I heard the sounds of rending cloth as Jones clutched at his skirts. The light flashed upon the barrel of a revolver, but Holmes's hunting crop came down on the man's wrist, and the pistol clinked against the stone floor. "'It's no use, John Clay,' said Holmes. "'You have no chance at all.' So I see, the other answered with the utmost coolness. I fancy that my pal is all right, though I see you have got his coattails. There are three men waiting for him at the door, said Holmes. Oh, indeed. 
You seem to have done the thing very completely. I must compliment you. And I you, Holmes answered. Your red-headed idea was very new and effective. You'll see your pal again presently, said Jones. He's quicker at climbing down holes than I am. Just hold out while I fix the derbies. I beg that you will not touch me with your filthy hands, remarked our prisoner as the handcuffs clattered upon his wrists. You may not be aware that I have royal blood in my veins. Have the goodness also when you address me also to say sir and please. All right, said Jones with a stare and a snicker. Well, would you please, sir, march upstairs where we can get a cab to carry your highness to the police station? That is better, said John Clay serenely. He made a sweeping bow to the three of us and walked quietly off in the custody of the detective. Really, Mr. Holmes, said Mr. Merriweather as we followed them from the cellar. I do not know how the bank can thank you or repay you. There is no doubt that you have detected and defeated in the most complete manner one of the most determined attempts at bank robbery that have ever come within my experience. I have had one or two little scores of my own to settle with Mr. John Clay, said Holmes. I have been at some expense over this matter, which I shall expect the bank to refund. But beyond that, I am amply repaid by having had an experience, which is in many ways unique, and by hearing the very remarkable narrative of the Red-Headed League. You see, Watson, he explained in the early hours of the morning, as we sat over a glass of whiskey and soda in Baker Street. It was perfectly obvious from the first that the only possible object of this rather fantastic business of the advertisement of the League and the copying of the encyclopedia must be to get this not overbright pawnbroker out of the way for a number of hours every day. It was a curious way of managing it, but really, it would be difficult to suggest better. The method was no doubt suggested to Clay's ingenious mind by the color of his accomplice's hair. The $4 a week was a lure which must draw him, and what was it to them who were paying for thousands? They put in the advertisement, one person has a temporary office, the other person incites the man to apply for it, and together they manage to secure his absence every morning in the week. From the time that I heard of the assistant having come for half wages, it was obvious to me that he had some strong motive for securing the situation. But how could you guess what the motive was? The man's business was a small one, and there was nothing in his house which could account for such elaborate preparations and such an expenditure as they were at. It must then be something out of the house. What could it be? I thought of the assistant's fondness for photography and his trick of vanishing into the cellar. 
the cellar. There was the end of this tangled clue. Then I made inquiries as to this mysterious assistant and found that I had to deal with one of the coolest and most daring criminals in London. He was doing something in the cellar, something which took many hours a day for months on end. What could it be once more? I could think of nothing save that he was running a tunnel to some other building. So far I had got when we went to visit the scene of action. I surprised you by beating upon the pavement with my stick. I was ascertaining whether the cellar stretched out in front or behind. It was not in front. Then I rang the bell and, as I hoped, the assistant answered it. We have had some skirmishes, but we had never set eyes upon each other. I hardly looked at his face. His knees were what I wished to see. You must yourself have remarked how worn, wrinkled, and stained they were. They spoke of those hours of burrowing. The only remaining point was what they were burrowing for. I walked round the corner, saw that the city and suburban bank abutted on our friend's premises, and felt that I had solved my problem. When you drove home after the concert, I called upon Scotland Yard and upon the chairman of the bank directors, with the result that you have seen. And how could you tell that they would make their attempt tonight, I asked. Well, when they closed their league offices, that was a sign that they cared no longer about Mr. Wilson's presence. In other words, they had completed their tunnel. But it was essential that they should use it soon as it might be discovered or the bullion might be removed. Saturday would suit them better than any other day as it would give them two days for their escape. For all these reasons, I expected them to come tonight. You reasoned it out beautifully, I exclaimed in admiration. It is so long a chain, and yet every link rings true. It saved me from despair, he answered, yawning. Alas, I already feel it closing upon me. My life is spent in one long effort to escape from the commonplaces of existence. These little problems help me to do so. And you are a benefactor of the race, I said. He shrugged his shoulders. Well, perhaps after all, it is of some little use. <laughs>